0: Welcome to the Truth Over Traditions podcast, proclaiming the truth of God's Word while exposing the errors of tradition. And now your host, author and pastor, James Hollinsworth. Let's begin with a pop quiz. I hope you studied. (laughs) This one will be multiple choice. Which answer best describes your relationship with the Lord? 1. I have been saved. Two, I will be saved. Three, I am being saved. Or four, all of the above. So, which answer best describes your relationship with the Lord? I have been saved. I will be saved. I am being saved. Or all of the above. Of course, the correct answer for all children of God is number four, all of the above. Let's take each one of these statements and flesh them out a bit. First, I have been saved. In one word, this is regeneration, the moment you received eternal life. You were saved, redeemed by the blood of Christ, given an entirely new nature and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, you were justified, that is, declared to be righteous, and sanctified, set apart from sin unto God. All of that happened in the past tense. It has already occurred, if you're a believer. It is a reality, for Christ now lives in you by his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 2 Corinthians five seventeen, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Ephesians two verse one and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins ephesians four twenty four You have put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness Colossians three nine and ten You have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Scripture seems to indicate this past tense transaction of salvation took place within the realm of your human spirit, which is distinct from your soul. Some take the position that man is dichotomous, or two parts, physical and metaphysical, or material and immaterial, and that is true in a sense, for that is mainly how man is described in the Old Testament. However, the New Testament gives more detail, splitting the metaphysical immaterial part of man into two further parts, for a total of three if you add the body. And so from a New Testament perspective, man is trichotomous, having three aspects to his being spirit, soul, and body. And that is outlined for us very clearly in a couple of passages first Thessalonians five twenty three. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews four twelve for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. While man cannot divide between soul and spirit, God certainly can. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 seems to emphasize that God, through his word, wants man to learn the distinction between soul and spirit. Why is this so important? Because the Bible teaches there are two metaphysical salvations, or we could say two key aspects of salvation. The salvation of the spirit as something distinct from the salvation of the soul. The spirit of man is reserved for god consciousness and prior to salvation the spirit of man is dead in trespasses and sins but it is made alive at regeneration john 3 and verse 6 that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit romans 8:10 if christ is in you the body is dead because of sin But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Romans 8.16 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Scripture is clear that salvation has a past tense component. If you have believed on Jesus for eternal life, then you have been saved, regenerated, and that work of God took place in your spirit. And it happened in the past. Let's now go to our second statement, I will be saved. So we move from the past to the future on this statement, I will be saved. You will be saved when you are resurrected at the rapture. The doctrinal term for this aspect of salvation is redemption when the earthly body of corruption will be given a resurrected body, equipped for existence in the ages to come. Romans 8.23 We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Ephesians 1.13-14 Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 4 and verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All of these verses refer to future salvation, that is, when we are given new bodies. 1 Corinthians 15:53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal Must put on immortality. Some like to use the doctrinal term glorification when speaking of future salvation. Glorification is certainly future, however, I prefer to use the term redemption because, in my opinion, while the bodies of all saints will be redeemed, as indicated in the verses I've already quoted, they will not all be glorified. Glorification is a concept of exaltation that in the eternal state seems to be accompanied by a glow in some degree. Think of Christ's body on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was not merely a resurrected body, it was a glowing, glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks more extensively about the varying degrees of glow depending on the degree of glorification, which is conditional. I would encourage you to read that chapter. Unfaithful saints apparently will not have that glow, for it is reserved for those who have suffered with Christ and have remained faithful and therefore will glow with Him in the eternal state. Romans eight sixteen and 17 say that as believers, we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. But the verse goes on to say, And joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Many miss the fact that joint heirship with Christ is not automatic. It is conditional based on whether or not the believer suffers with Jesus. If so, then the believer will be glorified together with Jesus. If not, then no glorification, which implies no ruling together with him. Paul speaks more about this in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Many Christians believe these verses are talking about the process of regeneration from the divine perspective and where it ultimately leads. Thus, glorification at the end of the line is merely the final result of regeneration. It will happen automatically to all believers at the end of the line, or so they think. I believe that interpretation is mistaken. Paul is speaking to believers in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And he's encouraging us to walk in the Spirit. At the end of chapter 8, he gives the divine perspective Not on the process of regeneration, but on the process of sanctification unto reward. Those whom God foreknows will choose to follow him in discipleship after they're regenerated. He predestines to that goal. Then he calls them to it and justifies them. Justification here is not used in a legal salvific sense but in a practical sanctification sense, like in James chapter 2. It is God's declaring righteous those of his children who are living uprightly, walking in the Spirit. They are the ones who will be glorified. In fact, verse 29 outlines the goal of sanctification, which is for that believer to be conformed to the image of Jesus which qualifies that one to be firstborn son amongst all of God's children. Only the firstborn will inherit a place of rulership in Christ's coming kingdom. This interpretation also fits Romans chapter 8, verses 14-17. through 17. Exaltation seems out of character for unfaithful saints, We will touch on this subject again in a future study in more detail. For now, let's get back to our study of the three tenses of salvation. Technically speaking, the realm of the body is not yet saved. Isn't that obvious? Our bodies decline throughout our earthly existence until it eventually dies and decays in the ground. In Romans 7.24, Paul called it this body of death. Nevertheless, the bodies of believers will be saved one day. You have been saved. At some point in your past, God regenerated you. It happened in the realm of your spirit, which the Holy Spirit made alive. In the future, you will be saved when God raises you at the rapture and gives you a redeemed body. What about the present Well, that brings us around to the third tense of salvation. I am being saved. As you live the Christian life, you are being saved. This aspect of salvation is known as sanctification, which is the idea of being set apart from sin and to God. Maybe I could emphasize it better this way. Set apart from sin and to God. To the extent sanctification is progressive, the believer becomes more like Christ. Experiential sanctification happens in the realm of the soul. Your soul, by the way, is comprised of mind, or we could say intellect, emotions, we could say feelings, and will, or volition. God has given every believer the provision necessary for progressing in the sanctification of their soul. However, spiritual progression is not automatic. You must choose to appropriate your God-given provision. Daily, moment-by-moment choices must be made to depend upon the enabling power of the Holy Spirit within your spirit to lead your soul, and then for your soul to lead the body in that order. When a believer reverses the order, allowing the bodily desires or the soulish passions to rule, then carnality results, and the Spirit of God is grieved. Carnality may be temporary, or it could potentially continue indefinitely. The salvation of the soul is to be distinguished from the salvation of the Spirit— Thus, it is correct theologically to say the Bible speaks of two metaphysical salvations, not merely one. Of course, we understand that the soul cannot be saved or progressively sanctified unless the spirit is first saved. You have to be a believer. As already demonstrated, the salvation of the spirit is a thing of the past and it impacts your future destiny. Whereas the salvation of the soul is a thing of the present, and it impacts your future rewards, either positive or negative. Listen to these verses about the salvation of the soul. And while listening, notice that for your soul to be saved at the judgment seat, which is future, you must live righteously in the present. James one twenty one. "...lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." That's written to believers. 1 Peter 1, 7 and 9, "...that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory." at the revelation of Jesus Christ, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Hebrews 10.39 We are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Whether or not the soul of a believer has been saved will be determined by Jesus at the judgment seat. He will make that determination based on how the believer submits to God's sanctifying work here and now. If the believer cooperates with God and experiences progressive sanctification, being set apart from sin and unto God, then he or she will be rewarded. The process is called the saving of the soul, and it culminates at the Bema. To that end, live for Jesus now. 1 Peter 2.11, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now at this juncture, I'm going to summarize the three tenses of salvation that we've talked about. I have been saved, that is past tense, and refers to regeneration in the realm of the Spirit. I am being saved, that is present tense, and refers to sanctification in the realm of the soul. I will be saved, that is future tense, and refers to redemption of the body in the resurrection. Now someone once asked me, does this mean that only one-third of a believer is actually saved? (laughs) Good question. It depends on how one defines the word saved. From man's perspective, the whole man is saved because we are incapable of separating our spirit and soul and body. However, God is able to divide asunder the three parts of man. And so theologically, it is accurate to refer to them independently. We have a responsibility to recognize what God has done and what he is doing and what he will do in each part of our being. As you can imagine, a battle rages for your soul. It is the part of you that is being saved, or not, in the present. And it is the aspect of your being that will be judged at the Bema. Satan wants to keep your soul from being saved. But Jesus wants you to be an overcomer. Indeed, he died so you can have victory. Incidentally, the battle is not between the new nature, a regenerated spirit, and a so-called old nature as if they were level playing fields. The Bible makes clear in second Corinthians 5:17, "Old things have passed away. behold, all things have become new. Thus the battle is between your righteous spirit. And your sinful soul that lives in an unredeemed body, the soul and the body are partners in crime, working together and collectively referred to as the flesh. This prompted the apostle Paul to cry out in romans seven twenty four "O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?" The apostle's sinful soul was working in league with his unredeemed body, holding him back from serving God. You ever feel like that in your Christian life? In Romans 8 and verse 2, the apostle refers to it as the law of sin and death. In chapter 7, verse 17, he calls it sin that dwells in me. But Paul also reveals the secret of victory over this law. It is another law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ, that frees believers from the law of sin and death, Romans 8 and verse 2. Some call it the law of counteraction, kind of like a hot air balloon pilot, overcoming the law of gravity by heating the air inside the balloon. If he refuses to believe the hot air will lift the balloon, he will never apply the heat. And so it is with a child of God who does not appropriate the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christ life. The sinfulness of your soul can be overcome by the righteous one who lives within your spirit, which has been made righteous. In the spirit realm of your being, the seed of God, the Greek word is sperma, remains and you cannot sin. 1 John 3, nine. Therefore, your soul is being saved only to the extent that you are letting the law of the spirit of life counteract the law of sin and death in your members. I want you to think of this powerful thought. The degree of your reward, either positive or negative, at the judgment seat of Christ will be determined by the extent to which your soul is saved in this life. It is critically important to understand the difference between the two metaphysical salvations, or we could just say the two salvations. First, the salvation of the Spirit, that's what lost people need. It's the good news about eternal life. It's also the bad news about sin and eternal condemnation. It's all about receiving Jesus as Savior. And it occurs at the moment one believes. It results in regeneration and eternal security. It is a gift based on faith. And it is unconditional. The result being, you become an heir of God. And that cannot be taken away. Now let's talk about salvation of the soul. Salvation of the soul is what saved people need. It's the good news about inheritance, but also the bad news about disobedience and disinheritance. It's about making Jesus Lord and King of your life. It's not a one-time thing, but it's a lifetime process. And it results in sanctification and inheritance. It's not a gift based on faith. It's a reward based on spirit-enabled works. And so it's conditional, resulting in you becoming a co-heir with Christ. Do you see the difference between the two salvations? Many students of the scriptures fail to differentiate between the two salvations, and thereby they commit a serious hermeneutical, that simply means interpretive, error. For instance, passages that refer to the saving of the soul, intended for Christians, are frequently applied to unbelievers and their need to get saved. Religious denominations that make this interpretive error arrive at the conclusion that salvation is by works. Passages about the possibility of losing the soul Are equated with going to hell. Passages about the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God are relegated to heaven, not the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are all dreadful mistakes, and they result in misinterpreting, for example, the book of Hebrews and passages in the book of James and Matthew, and for that matter, much of the New Testament. And it's a tragedy. For the church of Jesus Christ has not been taught to prepare for the judgment seat and the kingdom to follow. For children of God to be prepared to give a good account at the judgment seat, they must go all the way with Christ in discipleship so that he deems their soul to be saved and worthy of reward. Contrary to popular opinion, the soul is not automatically saved when the spirit is saved. Soul salvation is a lifelong process. And Jesus does not instantaneously declare all saints perfectly sanctified at the judgment seat. He announces a verdict for each one, whether positive or negative. The verdict determines how they live out their kingdom existence, as we shall see in future studies. While eternal salvation is determined at the moment of belief, it is only the beginning. The work of salvation in its complete sense from God's perspective continues over one's lifetime. Though we often refer to the ongoing aspect of soul salvation as progressive sanctification, it is technically part of God's complete salvation package, and it is accurately described as salvation of the soul. How you fare regarding the saving of your soul will be determined at the judgment seat. As we close this study, understand that salvation of the Spirit is a gift from God. John 3.16, Ephesians 2.8-9 It's a gift from God that anyone can receive now by faith alone in the finished work of Christ for eternal life. Whereas salvation of the soul is a reward from Jesus based on the quality of one's work for him that only believers will receive in the future or not if they don't qualify. Are you prepared to meet Jesus in judgment? I challenge you to think on these things.